to episode six of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cone. We're coming to you from New Orleans, Louisiana, and this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. What are we talking about today, James? So the first thing we're going to be talking about is what's considered the first black exploitation film. It's Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. <laughs> With like a million S's. <laughs> and uh, what else are we going to be talking about today? Uh, after that, our friend Hannah Rassinen is coming in to talk about um, Women in Captivity, which is this weird uh, cinema um, trend that's been coming up in the last year for no apparent reason. Uh, there's been about right. five uh, sort of low-key indie movies and a, a couple blockbusters in mm-hmm. there. Um where women are just held captive by men, and that's the source of the uh, the conflict. Um, and we're going to be unpacking all of that right, right now. Good God Almighty. That's all man. Yes, my children. He is dead. But he is not dead. He is with us here today. No, he's Our brother died here today of an overdose. An overdose of black misery. And now it's time for our movie of the minute section. This is where James and I sort of bounce back and forth, recommending films to each other. Uh, and this time, James had the wheel. So, what did we watch for this episode? So, f- for this episode, I decided, you know, since we're both kind of connoisseurs of black exploitation films, that we should w- watch what's considered the first black exploitation film ever made. Uh, 1971 Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song Uh, I just remember a few years ago during the summer we watched this whole box set of black exploitation films and uh, I felt like I had a good grasp on the genre and then I watched this movie and it kind of threw me for a loop a little bit and what did, what did you think of it? <laughs> well, it's a, kind of a strange inclusion in the genre because it doesn't really feel like black exploitation. It's more like a disjointed art movie, uh, just completely held by a madman like auteur, yeah. who would be Melvin Van Peebles, uh, who like I want to say wrote, directed, scored, starred in the movie, funded it. Uh, he performed his own stunts. Uh, he contracted gonorrhea in the unsimulated sex scenes. Like yeah. this is Melvin Van Peebles' show, um, and it's it's a lot different from the movies that followed it because basically, uh, studios saw this film do very well in the theater because people were hungry for this kind of content, and then they made the exploitation films that came after. Right. So it's very different than like uh, what we were watching was like Black Godfather, which was like a black version of, of The Godfather, or like Black Cobra, which is a black version of the uh, Sylvester Stallone movie Cobra. Um, so this one's a little different, but I do think that the uh, experimental aspects of this film you can see in the other ones. Uh, like, one of the best shots in, um, what's the movie uh, with Pusher Man in it? The, um, Curtis Mayfield song. Uh, Superfly. Uh, Superfly. So yeah. uh, Superfly. There's these scenes where he's just in the mirror laughing maniacally, and all this money is raining on him, uh, and it's just this weird, disjointed like dream sequence. But it's part of the reality of the movie, and basically, Sweet Sweetback is that for two hours. Right. It's just it, complete insanity. It really is insane, and for me, the first like 30, 45 minutes, I was kind of on board. I was like, oh, this is batshit crazy like I can get down with this but it after a while it does kind of wear on you because he goes full 100% into the like hallucinatory the whole movie feels like a really bad acid trip (laughs) you have shots superimposed on each other like three different shots all on top of each other you have really quick jump cuts you have super extreme close-ups all these kind of like art house techniques it in a lot of ways it seems more like a european art house film than it does like black cinema you know the movie starts it says dedicated or starring the you know the black community but (laughs) yeah it's uh it's saying uh this film is starring the black community and beer soul Whatever that means. <laughs> and 
so it has this reputation as like the first black exploitation film. It was mandatory viewing for the Black Panthers, apparently. Yet, to me, watching it, it seemed more in the vein of like, like I said, those European art house films. Yeah, the editing reminded me a lot of sort of outsider artists like uh, Russ Meyer does that rapid fire editing where you're just like sort of assaulted by all these images and you don't have time to process any of them. Uh, there's also that Japanese movie House. It's like a right. horror movie where like just the, the rhythm changes so often that it's hard to like keep keep any sort of grasp on what the movie's actually doing from minute to minute. And when done well, it can really build tension. And But in this film, it's done so often that it is kind of an exhausting watch. I mean, I mean, I'm going to say that I am fascinated by this movie. I respect it. Like Van Peebles' ambition is unmatched. Like, right, this guy tried so hard with so such little facilities that it's crazy that this was the product that came out of the other end of it. But I kind of hated this movie <laughs> for large stretches of it. I just felt so just like it was such a punishing rhythm. It's so hard to get into it, and it just keeps disorienting me in a way that I just never felt uh, like I was actually enjoying myself watching it. No, it, it, I think it's one of those movies that it's important for historical reasons, but the actual act of watching it and sitting through it is very painful. Um, it, to me, all the backstory stuff was way more interesting, kind of. I mean, you touched on a little bit the fact that there's unsimulated sex scenes and he got gonorrhea. The movie starts with his son, who is definitely underage. Uh, uh, performing with a prostitute, I think? Yeah, like having that whole... Oh yeah, wait, what happens is his son has sex with a prostitute because he's like raised in a brothel. And his son's playing a younger version of him, right? Right. So he has sex with the prostitute, and uh, immediately while having sex with her, he ages into the adult uh, sweet, sweet back. But like, it, and that's the act that makes him a man, is having sex with this. Which is super messed up, because <laughs> it, it's still, when you're watching the unedited version, it's a young child naked with a grown woman oh yeah and this isn't like the first like two minutes so it's like right. really uncomfortable beginning. that's what, and that's what's so bizarre it starts with that and then you get the title screen about you know starring the black community and all that it's like i i can't imagine what black audiences would have thought you know starting a movie like that and then the way it all plays out is just very bizarre and well i think just so many movies were just like pure white faces bef uh, behind and in front of the camera that like to have this sort of outsider art film uh, where pretty much everybody involved was a person of color probably was like this really refreshing like mm -hmm. jarring thing like wow like we are able to make these things on our own like this is a possibility and uh, honestly as like gross as some black exploitation movies are um, th there was a pretty big stride in like representation on both sides of the camera that honestly has sort of faded away since that genre wasn't around. Mm -hmm. Like uh, you'll get a few bigger productions every year, but Hollywood doesn't really fund these kinds of movies anymore. Which yeah, is, which is sad. And that, that's why you have to kind of respect Melvin Van Peebles because the budget was so minuscule, and it ended up making i don't know 15 14 million dollars it made way more money than anybody expected which was a pretty awesome pay payback for him because he invested so much personal money and time into this that if the movie had failed he would have just been completely ruined yeah and and to go back to like kind of the backstory you know stuff like he borrowed fifty thousand dollars from bill cosby to fund the movie he also got Earth, Wind, and Fire to do the soundtrack yeah, yeah, before, before they were popular, and then wrote them a check that bounced. <laughs> they never, <laughs> they never actually got paid for writing music for the film. So I don't know the all that kind of stuff to me is really fascinating. But man, the film itself—it's just like so jarring. Well, um, one of the reasons I thought that you might have liked it more than me, and I'm surprised to hear that we're pretty much on the same page, is that it felt like the visual version of jazz. 
And I know that you have, like, a higher tolerance for, like, jazz's dissonance. And, like, there's some moments in the movie where, like, two songs are playing on top of each other. Yeah. Or, like, uh... I don't know, the, the untrained actors bouncing off of each other has this sort of, like, uh... Just sort of jarring, yeah, it's, in, it's feel improvisational. To it. Yeah, it seems like it was just kind of made up on the spot, which I think it actually was. Like, from my understanding, he basically shot shot it kind of like in sequence, and then went back and edited like crazy. Um, and it does have that free form, uh, like you know, kind of Ornette Coleman style jazz, where yeah, it's just completely random, and I. I got that feeling too, but what it really comes down to is by the end of it, I was exhausted and did not really enjoy watching it. I mean, a lot of it had to do too with the technical side of things on such a low budget. You know, a lot of the shots happen in dimly lit spaces and you can barely make out what's going on. Yeah. And I mean, which he, he was sort of an amateur filmmaker making this, so it's not surprising that there would be parts like that. Um, but I remember when we were watching a lot of these black exploitation movies, what we were pulling out were these specific scenes or sequences where like some crazy idea kind of pays off mm-hmm. in a way that like other movies wouldn't take the risk. Um, and there's definitely no shortage of that here. Like, it's just one crazy idea after another. I'm just not sure it ever like it never comes really together. sticks. Right, at least for me, the one. Well, one part that definitely stuck though was, and I don't know if I've seen this in any of the black exploitation films we watched, but him using the handcuffs as brass knuckles to beat <laughs> the cop to death was like awesome. Yeah, like it, there were like small ideas like that, and the, the the character does have an interesting trajectory. Like he starts in a brothel, like dead broke. Um, so, like, life was never going to work out well for him. And then he sort of gets hassled in this, like, uh, not even an organized way, just, like, by life and white people and cops. And basically just becomes an outlaw because someone else frames him for murder. Uh, so the whole movie is just him running away from this problem that was never his. Uh, so there is an interesting plot there. Um, and I like the way that he becomes sort of, like, this makeshift hero for for the black community as they put it uh, yeah. in the credits. And I, I like too that it didn't end in violence. Like I think in a lot of the movies we watch it would have ended probably with him getting killed. He's still by out on the road. People, but he escapes, you know, yeah. to Mexico and that that was sort of refreshing and and also I do like uh the way that it basically talk shit about like white people mm-hmm. I've seen some of the later films do that a little bit better but I could see how this movie would make white people uncomfortable <laughs> they, and I like that yeah. like, I like the fact that he seems to be provoking because uh, again it was required viewing for the Black Panthers and it was at a time you know right after the civil rights movement where tensions were still kind of high and I, I I could see how the movie would would kind of resonate and they, they set up that context as soon as the forward like before the film starts it says like this film is dedicated to all the brothers and sisters who had enough of the man and it's like pretty clear who the man is in that, in that uh, analogy but it's uh, it's definitely like a, a forceful um, almost punk uh, just bucking of the system um, but like I said, it's just so hard to focus on any <laughs> particular scene as it goes along. I know, it's such a shame, because all this stuff we're talking about, I like... I think it's really a perfect example of a movie where like I really like the idea of it more than the final product. Right, like like you were saying, like the first few minutes... I mean, I'm watching it, I'm like, okay, there's this weird strap-on sex scene in the fucking brothel, and then this cross-dresser comes out with a sparkler... And the camera takes on the sparkler's point of view, so it's sort of whipping around the room and just like glowing. And I'm going like, onto a woman's breast. I'm like, if this is going to be my favorite movie, just because it's right. so bonkers right out of the gate. And then I, I just couldn't hold on to that feeling for very long. I, there's a few, okay, like the scene where he gets um, abducted by the biker gang 
and there's a whole like 10 minute scene where he's having sex with one of the women in the biker gang and he chooses to like focus on the headlight of one of the bikes and let's superimpose that over him having sex and then let's do a bunch of jump cuts random shots of men in the crowd and it's just like so disorienting and it's all like in the dark basically and well, when you have long scenes like that it's really hard like to enjoy it i mean it's just and i'm not, I'm not even disagreeing with you while you're saying this but i get what he's saying like even the title of the movie and the title of the character is sweet sweetback and he's from the brothel to uh, his eventual grave, which doesn't happen in the movie, thank you, thankfully. But uh, his whole life, he's treated at best as a sexual object. And that's the only time he's valued as a human being in the movie is when he's fucking. So it's like, but I get why se- he focuses on the sex scenes, but it just doesn't... But doesn't that seem to undermine the entire purpose of the film as kind of like black liberation in a way... When really it's playing into those age-old stereotypes of like black men are gonna come and like have sex with your white women because of their giant genitals. I think that and, I think that what they're doing is uh, criticizing that. I don't think they're playing into it. It's not. It's supposed to be kind of a sad thing that his whole life he's been treated as like basically a a, a, a an object. Yeah, but um, it's not. It's not ever like a triumphant situation for him. Except for maybe at the beginning where he becomes a man by having sex with an older woman. That, but that's that just, part's kind of weird. But it's uncomfortable because you know, his son, Mario Van Peebles, looks extremely uneasy about doing that scene. Like He doesn't look like he's experiencing pleasure anyway. And the thing is, what I thought was kind of good in a way was that that's how the main character... Uh, Sweet Sweetback, when he has sex, he doesn't look like he's particularly enjoying it. Yeah, he's just kind of running through the motions, and he puts his hat back on, and he's like done. That's why I see it as a criticism. I don't think they're like, uh, I don't think he's playing into it as like bravado. I think it's supposed to be kind of sad that his only place in this world is as like a gigolo. Um, But like I said, the the plot is just as much like the experimentation in that it's interesting and I like what they're saying, but it's so hard to like focus on it just cause the, it's a shame. cause there's just as much headlights and weird angles in that scene as there is like, uh, him having sex. Well, and then also after that, it, there's like a good 30 minutes of the movie that is him just running <laughs> on the run. And Oh my God, I was laughing out loud when there's that whole long scene where there's like a funky beat in the background and Sweet Sweetback is just saying like, come on feet, come on legs, come on knees. And this goes on for like 10, 15 minutes. I'm not like, going to lie. I paused it at least twice during that segment and just sort of walked away and like had a deep <laughs> breath and like came back. I'm like, okay, come on legs. And then I stopped it again. I'm like, all right, he's still going. Come and he, on I, feet. I like had to count it out and like talk myself through it. Like I was going through like, labor how far or something. is he going to run? He like <laughs> runs across the desert. He eats like a lizard. He's running through the streets of the city. It, it never ends. And, it really does feel like a bad acid trip that's just lingering and won't end. Uh, but well, I mean, it, I think it, we're basically saying the same thing here. It's just like a very ambitious movie. It's very impressive when it when it allows itself to be, uh, but it's it's hard to recommend it as like a complete whole work of art. Um, it almost demands to be seen, but it's like hard to say that someone should put themselves through it just because it's not a fun experience. A, but again, I think hats off to to Melvin Van Peebles because it definitely seemed like his vision, 100%. Like you said, he wrote, directed, scored, did everything involved with the movie. And the fact that this is the movie he wanted to make, something that's so batshit crazy, I mean, I think we should give him some props. But it still do, it doesn't mean that, you know it's a fun, enjoyable movie that I would recommend um, to I, most people. But I know at the beginning we were saying it's not very much like black exploitation films, uh, like it is different. But I will say that um, 
I don't think the movies of like Dolomite, who I would consider probably the best, right, the pinnacle, the pinnacle sure. of the genre. Um, he, I don't think his movies would have been the same without this. Like, uh, I think the Human Tornado is probably my favorite black exploitation film, mm-hmm. and I don't think that movie would be nearly as insane or ambitious or just like as out there as it is without yeah. Sweet Sweetback uh, sort of backing it up and giving it birth. Because he, because yeah, he set if it's the first black exploitation film, then it set the bar pretty high as far as like what's allowed, as far as you know anything goes. Like be as crazy as you want. Take these elements of art house films and experiment, you know, and other films after did it better, but I, I agree with you. I don't think the genre would be as good as it is if it wasn't for this film to kind of set that benchmark. Um, and if I have to like say one thing on the way out is that I was looking into the movie after the fact, and I saw that there is a documentary called Badass, uh, with however many S's is in the title. That um, his son made. Right, Mario Peoples the made it. Of the film. Yeah, it's a documentary about the production of Sweet Sweetback. And just personally, that sounds like I'm probably going to love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just because it's like probably more digestible um, and maybe includes enough clips and like uh, references to the film to sort of like help you feel how special it is even if it is uh, just too jarring a train wreck yeah Um, and you know honestly like maybe it's maybe it's just me cynically looking back at the time but this is like right after hippie hippie peak yeah so like probably everyone was like super high when they made this Uh, they weren't necessarily thinking in their right minds I think that's a fair assumption I think maybe if uh, Mario Van Peep Melvin Van Peebles is a little more sober in like the production and editing process. This might be like one of the greatest films of all time. It's almost there. It just needs like a more like sober guiding hand. Well, and that there was no guiding hand. It was all him. So <laughs> and I, but I appreciate those kind of auteur directors that fully take the reins and like it's his vision. So I would say I can't I can't say I like recommend it in the traditional sense, but I do. Think that people that are interested in that genre, the black exploitation genre, should check this out because it does add a lot of context uh, to all the films that came after it. And I don't know, it's kind of a freak show, and you should check it out. <laughs> Hell, it's, it's 2016. Watch it in clips. <laughs> you right. can find like a few stray clips of it just to get an idea of like how over the top it is. Um, just watch it in small bits because that's probably a lot. Less overwhelming than watching the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Heavily. He put me in his garden shed. Here. Room is the shed. He's locked the door. He's the only one that knows the code. You know the secret numbers that open the door? He's the only one that knows. And I've been locked in here for seven years. I've been in here for seven years. Do you understand? This door is boring! And now it's time for the topic du jour. Uh, Today we're talking about uh, women in captivity. Uh, It's going to be hopefully a little more fun than it sounds. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, about five movies we've watched in the past year that um, happen to feature women um, held captive by men in confined spaces. Why is it a thing all of a sudden? That is, is there... such a good question. Yeah, yeah that that's what I want to know. First of all, like, why is this a recent trend? I, I don't I don't have an answer, but... Well, I will say that, like, the thing I noticed about all these movies is they're all about women breaking out of captivity, pretty much. And the archetype throughout, like, years and years has been, like, women are held captive by men and, like, freed by men. Especially in old video games, which I used to play all the time. Like, the first scene was always this woman being stolen away. Yeah, Princess and Yeah, like Zelda or, yeah, Princess Peach. So, I think um, as gender roles and, like, conversations about gender change, that narrative kind of changes. Yeah, it's a triumphant trajectory to, like, watch someone free themselves from this impossible situation. I mean, I'm just coming off last night, I just watched uh, The Green Room. And it's basically oh, like yeah. this like punk band is like yes! trapped in a hole, yeah. and they can't they have to like fight their way out, and it's like impossible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is like a triumphant feeling to watch somebody like free themselves. And you're right, like it has changed over time. Uh, 
It's definitely not like boxing Helena, you know, a no. movie that came 20 years before that had that similar idea, but it wasn't really about empowering women, you know, changing gender roles. So yeah. I think we made a little bit of progress and in I, the past 20 years. I guess the movie that's like most um, form breaking on our list that's like that is uh, Fury Road mm-hmm. because yeah. we actually don't have to watch them in captivity. I think there's like a comic book that comes before the, the movie where yeah. they actually are in captivity. But all we see is like uh, Charlize Theron being a badass and like leading all, all the other women that she was held captive with to freedom. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. And Tom Hardy, uh, I guess, could have been their savior in like a past 80s movie. Mm-hmm. But in this movie, he's just more or less along, along for the ride. Like he helps out. But... Yeah, he helps, but he's not like. He's not really the like leader so much like, no. you know, Charlie's Theron is. So it's, act- yeah, it's more of a feminist picture than I think it's gotten credit for. Mm-hmm. I, w- I wonder how um, much of that was producers, uh, sort of how hard it was to pitch a movie where Mad Max is like a sidekick Side in his character. own story. Yeah. Because uh, there is a Furiosa sequel coming out where Charlize Theron's supposed to be like the star of the movie, um, which it feels like I already watched that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that was the major complaint that I heard everywhere at first. Every, like, so many people were furious that Mad Max, and he doesn't really have that many lines even. He has like a couple of like crazed little things that he says, but they were like, oh man, Furiosa's got the whole thing. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And if you consider that MRAs are, like, real people, um, <laughs> exactly. uh, they had, like, so many, like, angry blogs that, like, went around, um, like, Facebook posts. But I feel like most of what I saw was people being like, look how fucking shitheaded this attitude is. Yeah, exactly. Right? I don't feel like, I feel like the average person watching that movie probably felt really great about them being locked out, uh, them being, like, broken out of jail. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of what the, uh, trying to think of what the, uh, the line was is it we are not your property or women are not property um that they spray painted on the wall that Imogen Joe finds in the uh, mm-hmm. the cell it's something like that yeah uh, women are not things maybe yeah um and like I think there's one uh, older woman who stays behind uh in captivity mm-hmm. just to like blast anyone yeah. who comes with a shotgun exactly and that's like the one glimpse we get but um that's the more like expansive uh movie uh, on the list, everyone else is very much confined, but subverts the power play. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, pretty much in every one of these movies, the woman is actually in control, except for maybe 10 Cloverfield Lane, uh, which just came out a few months ago. Um, pretty much uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I believe is her name. Mm-hmm. She plays this um, woman who's held captive by John Goodman, who is absolutely terrifying in this movie. <laughs> Um, and yeah. he basically tries to convince her that the world is ending and she does not believe him and wants to break out of his bunker. Well, and he does a great job of like, do I trust this guy? Like, on mm-hmm. the, there's some scenes where he seems like he's really uh, kind of forthright and he's a good man. And then there's other scenes where it's like, oh, no, he's a total creep. But I don't know. I still think in 10 Cloverfield Lane, she's like smart, at least. Yeah. Like, she's not, you know, basically she reacts in a way that, like, any normal smart person would. So, I mean, even in that, like, she, I don't know. Yeah, and, like, she's held captive, but she's not overwhelmed by her captivity. You know, she's always looking for ways to... Get out. Yeah, and she actually, I mean, in one point, she could have gotten out, and then she decides that it's best for her to stay in the bunker right she gets a little bit of a glimpse of what it's actually like outside she's like maybe i'm not prepared for this Mm -hmm. maybe she'll go back to the drawing board yeah she figures out another way to like uh prepare herself to like get out of his grasp but yeah there there's that like constant struggle where you can just see her scheming and like working Mm -hmm. towards a goal over a long time and like we were saying like that's a very uh that's a triumphant feeling to watch someone like problem solve like that um which i guess was uh you know, everyone liked The Martian last year for, like, the practical problem-solving. But mm-hmm. I, f- I felt like Tim Cloverfield Lane was even more um, just fun to watch her, like, break out of this impossible oh, yeah. situation. Yeah, and I kept thinking, whenever there are those kinds of movies, I always imagine, like, what would I do if I was in her situation? And I 
watching that movie, I was like, I would definitely die. There's no, like, no question she's super smart, like, I yeah. was thinking. The other guy that's locked in the bunker with her, um, I would just be that guy. The guy just, like, <laughs> gives up on life, and he just sort of goes with the flow. She sort of inspires him to start, like, working for some mm-hmm. kind of goal, but I probably would be in that situation where I would need some, like, somebody to inspire me to, like, yeah. get going. Like, oh, this is fine, you know, I got a lot of food, whatever. And yeah. I, to go to another movie on the list, Ex Machina, you know, she kind of takes it to another level where she really is in control mm-hmm. the, the whole time. Like, you think that she's not, that she's the one being held captive when it turns out, like, she's kind of working everyone. She's way smarter than the men mm-hmm. in yes. the story. And uh, basically every movie on our on the list kind of... The woman is empowered, but on, like, different levels. Right, it's, of. it's, uh, you don't really want to reveal your hand at the wrong point, I think, is what mm-hmm. most of the women are going through here. Uh, and definitely Ex Machina is, like, the, uh, prime example of that, uh, where she, I mean, all three of them are trying to play each other, but the two guys, like, don't even stand a chance. Uh, right. Yeah. Because she's an artificial intelligence, and she only gets stronger and smarter as she interacts with people as the movie goes along. Yeah. Um, and the two guys are super vulnerable because of hubris, and we're talking about a, a machine. Uh, yeah. Even though we're calling her feminine, uh, she, we're calling her a female, like, she's not a real person. Um, even though the movie tries to convince you that she is. Uh, and that's, like, a very interesting difference between everyone else on the list. Yeah. This, I think, was maybe one of my favorite examples of women in captivity, because, to me, it was the most similar to a woman being held captive by an evil guy and some other man coming and trying to save her but like a complete subversion of that like at the end the guy the white knight right. kind of person is just kind of an asshole who he's is, a, another guy that basically still wants something yeah. out of it yeah. which every white knight you know they want to save the girl but they still want the girl to get laid yeah in the well, end yeah. and she subverts that entire thing and like she's fully in control it's not even saving the girl, it's getting the girl. Yeah. Like, it's not like, oh, I'm saving her so that she can go live her life. It's like, I want to possess her. her. Yeah. Yeah. And especially since there's that other, you know, the other robot woman who, and he kind of just goes along with the idea that she's basically the lead creator's sex slave, kind of. Yeah, and yeah like, she is. Oh, all right, that's, you know, that's fine, I guess. He doesn't say Whatever, anything, but... just a robot. Yeah, when there's this woman who's, like, programmed based on his pornography results. It's like, <laughs> oh, I gotta, gotta save this girl. Yeah, he's, he's basically played like a cad in the movie. Like, it, you're not... You, you might sympathize with him for a while, but once you sort of get to the core of, like, what he's doing, he's just as pathetic and, like, uh, just yeah. as much of a villain yeah. as uh, Oscar Isaac's character. I read a lot of stuff online. People that were, like, Oh, I hated that ending. Like he was a good guy. Like why yeah. would you? Why would she leave him behind like that? It's like no, he wasn't a a good guy. Like she saw through his bullshit. Yeah. And he, you know, just like every other man in that story, he just wanted to, you know, use her. For... Yeah. Well, getting back to like the MRA straw uh, straw man argument, like he's a nice guy. He deserves the girl. Mm-hmm. Is kind of the argument there, but. I mean, and, that, and that's why that movie is so great because it does subvert that entire concept. Yeah. Um, going back to uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, who was in Ten Cloverfield Lane, she was also in a movie called Faults, uh, which has a very similar um, trajectory to Ex Machina in yeah. a way that you wouldn't expect. Um, basically, this woman's locked in a hotel room, uh, trying to get broken uh, out of a cult. And then um, the the cult, what do you call that? Like a deprogrammer? Like yeah. The, the cult deprogrammer guy believes he's in full control and holding this woman captive and like uh, save, basically saving her life so that he can look awesome uh, mm-hmm. and revive his career. But really the whole time she's just playing him like a fucking yeah. fool. <laughs> just like from the very first step. It's, he was never, he never had a chance. Yeah. He's yeah. so he's such a pathetic character, and he yeah. does a great job of oh. making you feel that yeah. before you even get to the hotel room mm-hmm. where he's holding her captive. But uh, she is so good in this movie with like a sort of quiet uh, sort of power where yeah. you can watch her manipulate him, and it's so fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, when it should be so dark. Yeah, from the very first scene, like like. 
first five minutes, I was just like, this guy is an asshole. Like, it's so, it made me, like, physically uncomfortable to see him. But I, I really like how, I mean, she uses, like, every single stereotype of, like, a naive, helpless woman that she possibly can, like, with, you know, integration in the cult, and then also, like, using her own, the people that she's with mm -hmm. to kind of manipulate him and make him understand why she would be in a cult, but it's, it's just all completely orchestrated. Right. Yeah, because uh, basically she's... She makes it seem like he's complicit with her own parents. Yeah. And, like, holding her captive. And, like, her parents are sort of condoning this captivity. But that's mm -hmm. not the situation at no. all. Uh, yeah. And it's much weirder and stranger than that. And the movie does a good way of uh, keeping you just as much in the dark as mm -hmm. the cult deprogrammer guy. Because at first you're like, oh, maybe this cult's uh, really bad for her. Maybe he's actually doing a good thing, even though he's doing it selfishly. Mm -hmm. And then you watch, and you're like, maybe this religion is real yeah i felt so stupid for the i was like but i definitely felt like okay maybe you know maybe this is the movie like it's this real thing and then i was like no no can't yeah there's like this like supernatural mm -hmm. uh reveal or three where yeah. you're like oh my god i love the direction this is taking me and then you feel like a complete fool yeah uh, because she's so good and so convincing and the yeah. writing's that good as well yeah um and i think every step that she's manipulating him like you said like you're right along with him being manipulated like the cult is bad and then you think like her situation at home is maybe worse like also right. probably like bred her to be attracted to a cult in the first place and maybe the cult is like less damaging and then it just kind of ugh, ugh. rolls into this beautiful <laughs> horrible thing and when he first grabs her uh with help uh in a van um that's mm -hmm. like a very uh like a real feeling scene because uh, a lot of these movies you see the woman um, being held hostage but you don't actually see them being abducted mm -hmm. which there's a huge difference here because basically she's just shopping for groceries yeah. and these three guys throw her in a van yeah and there are people standing in the back and just kind of watching like oh that's not normal <laughs> she's like screaming and like trying not to get in the van and it's like obvious that this is not supposed to happen but they're just and I'm like, no. Yeah, just complacent in her being yeah, <laughs> abducted. Yeah. Um, which, uh, that's kind of like how Room probably began, even though mm -hmm. we're not treated to that backstory. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in the movie, Brie Larson plays uh, Ma, uh, I believe is her official character name, and she's uh, she's abducted as a 17, 18-year-old girl yeah. um, who was helping a man look for a dog who never existed. Yeah. And I like that they never show it yeah it, mm -hmm. because it just starts in the room and that's her life basically it doesn't go into how it happened you don't get flashback scenes it's like they're in a room with their kid and that's mm -hmm. her life yeah and i think also it's like you're born with jack basically like it's that's the first part of the movie that's the first inkling you have of the world of the movie and that's is seeing it through his yeah, eyes exactly. like this is my world and i think that's yeah. where i differ from y'all and <laughs> my uh take on this movie is that i love the early parts where you're in the room and you're through jack's eyes and he's describing how his whole universe works like there's like tv planets and like yeah just different mm -hmm. uh mythical you didn't like the second half the recovery yeah half. there's like i guess that's where the emotional core of the film is. I get where me. they're going at, where they're going, but I feel like it's a it's a such a rug being pulled from under you moment because you're no longer feeling Jack's perspective. Uh, you're sort of going it through it through his mother's eyes, which just wasn't what the movie had established. Like I had, I just sort of lost what was special about it, and it mm -hmm. felt more like a I don't I don't want to call it like a lifetime movie or an after school special, but mm -hmm. it's something along those lines where well, you're like, actually recovery is really hard and these are the steps. Yeah, uh, which isn't a bad message for a movie, but it just wasn't what I was watching. Yeah, the the first half reminded me a lot of like Beasts of the Southern Wild, mm -hmm. like a child lost in their own imagination to deal with a difficult circumstance, and then there is definitely a shift in the second half to focusing on the mother, but. That, I mean, I didn't really have a problem with that. I do think Jack kind of takes a backseat mm -hmm. in the second half, but 
the mother's story is just as interesting to me. I mean, yeah. you know, we're talking about women in captivity and it's just as much her story as it is his. Sorry. And one of the moments that I really liked comes in that second part when she's talking to her mom and saying like, maybe if you hadn't taught me to be so nice, I wouldn't have been looking for the dog in the first place. And that to me is like, I mean, as a person who's been raised to be kind to everybody I meet, like that resonates with me a lot because it is scary to not know what people's intentions are, but to be raised to act in a certain way towards everybody. And that can get you in really terrible situations that are hard to get out of, especially if you don't have the skills to get out of those situations. I, and I also, one more thing I'll say about that is like, I'm glad that it didn't just stay in the room for the whole movie because basically I don't want to see them go through like that kind of, you know, the guy coming in and having his way with them and just the abuse and like, I don't want to watch that kind of movie. I like the fact that they got out early and then it's more about their like emotional journey. I don't want to see a film where they're stuck in a single room. I being... don't I don't necessarily think that's what I want either. I just think that even okay, even like her talking to her mom about being raised to be a vulnerable person, um, I don't think that could I don't think the movie is detrimented by including that, mm-hmm. but if, if it somehow could have been included from Jack's perspective, yeah. or there could have been a more clear break, uh, I probably would have been more into it. Because mm-hmm. it could have been interesting to watch his mother go through that through his eyes, because he does have such a unique, weird perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, did, I, I, did, I guess I was just like sad to lose that like perspective yeah. on life, just because it was just something so jarring and like unnatural. But that me. is the kind of the arc of the movie is also from Jack's perspective, mm-hmm. like he creates a world inside the room and then he has to come to grips with like the real world yeah. outside of the room. So I don't know. So I think I did read the book a couple of years ago and I think that in the movie he doesn't really have a hard time adjusting. It seems he just kind of goes into it pretty easily, but in the book he has a lot more difficulty trying to adjust to the world. And I think that that would have um, added more of his perspective into the second half. I I think one of his best moments is actually in the second half when Mm -hmm. he gets out. He has this like monologue about just the idea of the freedom from going to Mm -hmm. one space to another and like how beautiful it is to like be able to move from one room to the next. Yeah. That moment was so striking to me. So mm-hmm. I, as much as I'm like kind of dogging the second half of the movie, that was like my favorite part of the whole film, and that was after they get out. Yeah. Um, also, I, I don't know how controversial of an idea this is, but um, <laughs> just sort of spitballing this. Do you think he has sort of a feminine energy because he's like uh, well, I socialized with one thought person. he was a woman. <laughs> the whole time. So, oh. so when, we, when we went and saw it, I did not realize until way later than I want to admit that it was a a boy. I actually thought it was a girl for a good, I don't know, 30 mm-hmm. minutes or so of the film. And I, no, I agree with you. Like, I don't think that's controversial. I almost think that's intentional. Yeah. Like, was that in the book at all? The kind of... Oh, I don't remember the book well enough to know, like, how it was... But it would make sense... If the only masculine character he knows in his first five years of living is this horrible, yeah, that horrible, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. he does bring him toys, and but he's definitely not presented as a good person by his mother. So he, I think he would naturally be more inclined to develop a feminine. Fe- yeah, I think I mean children to a certain point are a lot more fluid in their gender mm-hmm. anyway. So yeah, it's definitely. not that like wild of an idea, but I, I just do think it's kind of weird that like. And it was just like a weird feeling, just like him being socialized with just like one other person. And I mean, children learn by mimicking. So like watching him mimic this person, it makes sense that he yeah. would have sort of a, a feminine presence. And I yes. guess that's part of his adjustment once he gets out, is that like the grandmother wants to give yeah. him a haircut that, and yeah. sort of butcher That up. to me was kind of a bittersweet yeah. scene though. Oh, it's, because, not a, it's not a good feeling. Yeah, because I, mean, I, I, I was like, oh no, like don't, like that was his identity and it's him... 
mm-hmm. sort of conforming. Like now that he's outside of the room, he has to conform to what society wants him to be. Yeah. Is a boy. Yeah. So yeah, I I got that same feeling you did, and I thought that haircutting scene was very sad. Yeah, <laughs> especially since I don't think that he was even given a lot of time to adjust before that happened. You know, it's like oh. Yeah gotta look like a boy now like let's let's get those locks cut but i do think it was sweet that he was you know sending them like the way that he gets it gets the hair cut off is a very sweet emotional kind of message yeah um okay so like moving away from movies for a minute Mm -hmm. there there also is the uh television show unbreakable kimmy schmidt uh, which came out um uh what 2014 Uh, maybe 2015 I think 2014, actually. Right. So, yeah, around there. And that might be somewhat of a glimpse into uh, why this came up, because I think that show was based off of, like, a real news story mm-hmm. about these women who were, like, held captive yeah. and, like, set loose, and it became kind of, like, a international, like, news story for, like, a couple days. Yeah. Are you talking about the thing in, I think it was, like, Cleveland? Yeah. Where they were locked up for years, and mm-hmm. they went on Oprah, and it was... Yeah, I, I do think that story is probably why... Definitely the room yeah, uh, yeah that, is based off of yeah. that to, on some degree. And, um, and I think, I, I mean, pretty much undeniably, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt was probably uh, sparked from the idea of watching that play out in like a nas- international um, stage. Uh, but it's, it's just interesting how uh, these ideas sort of make it into the ether. Like, I don't understand. I don't think room... And, Faults and Fury Road and Ex Machina and Ten Cloverfield Lane. I don't think you would necessarily group those movies together because they're all mm-hmm. so disparate. Yeah. But uh, there's something going on where people are into this idea right now. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, The Green Room has. I just watched this last night, so it's yeah. like on the top of my mind. But uh, it has like five kids of various genders uh, trapped in this room together. But it also has that same sort of like against the odds. Uh, finding your way out feeling that uh, all these movies have. Yeah. Although it's a lot more um, But I'm trying to think of older movies that had that same kind of thing going on. I'm I'm afraid to think back too far. Like I have a sort of a uh, just like negative feeling about like 70s exploitation movies. I'm sure there are a bunch. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking right now of maybe uh, was it Flesh Feast or Blood Feast? Uh, right, like, I'm thinking back to some of the like gory kind of exploitation films we watched that had a similar thing going on, but as it, it as wasn't was about empowering women at right. all. It was the exact opposite. Yeah, um, and maybe so, that's the change. Maybe like people are finding sort of a triumphant um, message mm-hmm. at, in this sort of like struggling against the odd story. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I and, do think everything that we've talked about is like coming from a good place basically and definitely i felt like fury road was a very well it could be interpreted as a very political statement because the women are being freed from their roles as basically surrogates for um what's yeah morton joe and like their destination is a matriarchy, like a, a paradise of women, which doesn't turn out to be a sustainable society, obviously, because it all gets messed up. So they up. have to go back. Yeah, and that, I think, is a very positive message for it, because I think a lot of um, radical feminists say, like, matriarchy is the way to go, that's going to solve all the problems, which isn't, that isn't a sustainable system. So... Yeah. And also the men and the women are working together in Fury Road to accomplish the same thing. So that's, I think that's a positive outlook for society. Like, we don't have to be and, at odds with each other. And I really do think the whole Fury Road, the arc of the story is like, they they take this long journey and they get to the end and realize, like, no, we actually have to go back mm-hmm. to you where to we started. Things. Yeah, yeah exactly. we, you have to fix things. And that is like such a good message, yeah. I feel like. Like it's not about trying to envision some new future that doesn't exist. It's about living in the present and trying to fix mm-hmm. what's right in front of you. Yeah. And in that way, I mean, I, you know, I think it's pretty, pretty great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you pretty know? great movie. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I, I don't, I'm looking at all five of these. I'm, I'm thinking all five of these are really great movies. Yeah, they are. Uh, and maybe there are others in the genre from the past year that we didn't pick or didn't think about because they're terrible. But um, it's definitely interesting that such like great art is coming out of this single mm-hmm. idea. And hitting it from different angles, mm-hmm. too. And also that these movies are being nationally celebrated. Like, two of them were nominees for Best Picture, and Ex Machina got a lot... I mean, it got a lot of technical oh, yeah. awards, but that was, like, obviously a heavily lauded movie. Yeah, I think probably Faults and 10 Cloverfield Lane are probably going to be the more, like, undersold yeah. movies on this list. I don't see 10 Cloverfield Lane making it to the Oscars next yeah. year. <laughs> but um, No, but it was, you know, for what it was trying to yeah. be, it hit the mark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Is there anything else you want to say before we head out? Oh, I like Free the women. Yeah, free the women. <laughs> yeah, if you're holding women in captivity, guys, just, just, let out. just let them go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you uh, want to promote anything while you're on? Um, I do. I don't have any projects going right now, but I do have an Instagram. It's um, honeybear, um, H-A-N-I-I-B-E-A-R. So it has basically, it has some good photos and then some just like cat videos and pictures of me so if you want to know what i look like be right there that's the internet right there exactly (laughs) uh and then um i guess for me uh we have um the captain america movies coming out this weekend it's probably gonna like make all the money in the world um and i just finished my uh marvel sort of recap with uh with mark uh on the website um it's called agents of swamp flicks if you go to the website and click under features it should be the first one listed um, and it'll have a recap for every Marvel movie that's come out in the universe. And I think I've just gone through all of them in the past, like, six months. So yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like a sense of accomplishment. My own captivity has been broken. Um, anything from you, James? Yeah, I'm going to be here. James is, <laughs> James is going to be on this podcast. So uh, listen for the next episode of the podcast if you want more James. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.